Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Chris Capazzola, professor of history at MIT, to discuss his new book on the history of U.S.-Philippines relations bound by war. The two discuss the importance of history for informing grand strategy and what lessons we can learn from the U.S.-Philippines relationship in peace and war since the 1900s. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm joined today by Professor Christopher Capozola to talk about his new book, Bound by War, which is a history of the United States and the Philippines, particularly through the view of our experiences together at war. And it has lessons for strategy in Southeast Asia, in the first island chain, in the Western Pacific today. And it's a fascinating read. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We always like to hear at the beginning kind of how you got into this. You're a historian first, and then you turn to Asia and the Philippines second. So why don't you tell us, you know, why history and why did you choose the Philippines for this study? Well, I've always been interested in history and in American history in particular, and the role of the U.S. military in the history of war in shaping 20th century America. I was always a historian of the United States, um, primarily, but uh, realized that so much of American history happens outside the United States. And this brought me to thinking about World War II in Asia, and I was spending uh, some time in Manila doing some research and visited the, the Manila American Cemetery. And you know that's how I begin the book. It's also in some ways how I begin the project. This is a, an American military cemetery that honors fallen soldiers and sailors of the Second World War. And as I was walking around, I was struck by just how many of the names on the walls were Filipinos. And this made me realize that this is an unwritten story of American history, the history of these two nations, not only having diplomacy, but having sort of a shared partnership um, in the Pacific. The use of history for strategy in programs that teach comprehensive grand strategy courses, Yale, UT Austin, uh, Georgetown, and, and Johns Hopkins and others, in general, history is viewed as the best guide for grand strategy, not political science. Learning to think in time, learning to understand contingency and risk mitigation and, and how events unfold over a longer period. But not all historians embrace uh, the use of history for policymaking or strategy. Where, where do you come out on that one? Because your book has some pretty, pretty clear implications, I think, for where the U.S. goes with the Philippines. I come down pretty firmly on the side of um, history is good for strategy. And the way I explain it is, you know, everyone knows the line that, um, you know, those who don't know history are condemned to repeat it. But there's a, the flip side of that is that those who don't know history also don't get the chance to repeat it. Things that have gone well in the past and understanding when people made the right choice and learning from that is just as important as, you know, figuring out any of the wrong, wrong paths along the way. So the book, the book has a beautiful symmetry and cemetery. <laughs> it opens in the Manila Cemetery, and you describe that. Uh, and it ends with the uh, Balanginga bells, the return of bells taken by uh, the U.S. military uh, during the insurrection and only returned in uh, 2018. So the beginning and the end are, are nicely paired. But the story in between really is a binational story, right? It, it's the description of the impact of this relationship and of war side by side, sometimes with each other, on both countries. And it reminds me, in some ways, of books like Lefebvre's The Clash about U.S.-Japan relations 
or John Pomfret's Beautiful Country, Middle Kingdom, Bruce Cummings' History of the U.S. and Asia, in that kind of interactive back and forth story of how we shaped each other. Did you have a certain model in mind for this? Uh, because your previous book was about the U.S. domestic scene during World War I, and this was a kind of binational history and how the two countries' experiences shaped each of us in Asia. Did you have a, a favorite historian or model in mind when you started building it around that structure? I did. I think in some ways I would have to give credit to a whole generation of people, um, scholars who have you know, tried to refigure U.S. history and U.S. diplomatic history as the history of the U.S. in the world um, and have said, you know, that this kind of research requires, you know, really deep research in the archives of the countries the U.S. deals with. But if I had a single model for it, I think that, you know, the best would be uh, my former colleague, uh, retired colleague, Professor John Dower, whose books about the U.S. and Japan are so um, sort of balanced between Japanese and American perspectives in ways that kind of shake up your mindset a little bit, right? Um, and force you to think not only differently um, about, in his case, Japan, in my case, the Philippines, but also in turn then thinking in new ways about the United States. You know, Dower's books, and as a Japan scholar, I think I've read them all, um, but War Without Mercy had such a huge impact on me when it came out. I was in just starting grad school, because it describes in very stark and uncamouflaged terms the racism and the racial imagery that drove both countries' propaganda and assumptions about the other. It was criticized at the time by some for having too much moral equivalency, as you may know. And so there's a little bit of peril in doing this back and forth, right? Because the, would it be fair to say that the U.S. impact on the Philippines was probably a lot greater than the Philippines' impact on the U.S.? Or is that not true? How do you sort of manage that aspect? Well, I think I went into this with the assumption that this was an uneven relationship, and certainly by many metrics, it, it is in terms of military power, economic power, and so forth. But Philippine history and Filipinos and Filipino-Americans are, are not absent from American history, and they haven't even necessarily been erased. Um, they're in some ways hidden in plain sight. Often when I tell people about this book, um, every once in a while, people you know reveal that that just how little they were taught about the Philippines in high school, in, uh, in American high schools. But more often than not, I get a story, right? A story from military service, a story from family history or growing up. And that shows just how deeply these countries were connected. And kind of bringing that part of the story together with uh, the grand strategy and the sort of high diplomacy is really important for understanding the relationship between these two countries. You know, one area, and it comes out in your book, where the experience in the Philippines had such a profound shape on American strategy is how we think about counterinsurgency. After 1898, with the defeat of the Spanish fleet at the Battle of Manila Bay, the U.S. wanted a base, a Navy base. To have a Navy base, they had to control the archipelago and got sucked into these conflicts. And then World War II, and then the Hukbalaha insurgency, which shaped thinking about Vietnam. And then, you know, only a few years ago, uh, Marawi, in Mindanao, this brutal, brutal urban warfare. So uh, there's a long evolution of American counterinsurgency strategy that was built around what we experienced in the Philippines, I think. I mean, did you find some commonality from one to the next? From 1898 to, you know, 1917 in Marawi is a long time, but did you find some sort of common themes in how we dealt with the Philippines, how we dealt with counterinsurgency? I did, and I would say, I would point to two. The first would be that basically from 1898 to the present, the United States has conducted counterinsurgency in the Philippines in close partnership with Philippine military forces. 
and in ways that sort of have made it more effective and more successful. And then I think that that's a crucial distinction from some of the other instances in, in U.S. history. The second connection is that these are all instances in which the U.S. military understood the counterinsurgency to have been successful and to have been successful because of things that they did rather than, for example, the collapse of any insurgent movement. And so that sort of lesson learning has been important and sort of tended to lead to sort of the application of the Philippine example to another scenario or another country. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of U.S. counterinsurgency in the Philippines, in comparative terms, when you look at Vietnam, when you look at Iraq and Afghanistan, it's a success story. And yet at the same time, it was a brutal, this is where American forces pioneered waterboarding and applied the kind of sweeping violence of the used against the Plained Indians overseas. So it's both a success story, but it's also where some of our worst instances of abuses take place. And they came up again during the uh, whole debate about waterboarding in the U.S. just a little over a decade ago, right? Philippines came up. People realized that. John McCain, among others, realized this is in our counterinsurgency DNA, and it started in the Philippines. Yeah, and I think that some of that was made possible by U.S. colonial control, which gave them sort of more control over the the territory, also over Philippine forces, um, which were partners in counterinsurgency. And some of that is also a relationship between the United States and and its own sort of memories of this period, right? That although the debate over the conduct of the war in the Philippines from 1898 to 1902 was headline news during that time period, led to congressional investigations, huge um, sort of controversies, it very quickly fades from the scene, right? And I think that its disappearance is as important as anything else, because when it reemerges 50 years later, 100 years later, and as a memory, it has to get sort of worked out as sort of what does this mean for America and our values um, as we practice them as military force abroad. One of the other aspects of the Philippines for the United States is its importance in terms of geopolitics and location. You argue in the book, the Pacific Century that Obama announced uh, actually began a century earlier when we annexed the Philippines. And I think that's right. But the vision of a forward operating base of coaling stations of our own version of what the British had with Hong Kong, as I wrote in my book, that goes back at least to the middle of the 19th century, if not earlier. And the Philippines were an accident. I mean, the early statesmen in the Pacific and in China uh, in the 1850s were arguing that we'd be much better off using a smaller island, more easily defended, like Okinawa, the Ryukyus, the Bonin Islands, maybe Formosa. One diplomat, Peter Parker, sent back a note to Washington saying, let's let the French have Korea and we'll go for Formosa. We kind of ended up with the Philippines as our forward line of defense by accident because of a war that started, of course, in Cuba against Spain. But then once we had it, you know, it became an integral part of our defense concept. So in the, and you mentioned this, in in War Plan Orange, uh, our plan after 1907 to defend against an attack on Japan, the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt called it our heel of Achilles, so far forward, so close to Japan, so far away from us. And then in 1947-48, MacArthur and Cannon wrote that our forward defensive line against communism after the fall of China to Mao, should be the first island chain, so Japan, the Philippines. And, you know, here we are again with the South China Sea. You know, the Philippines are increasingly being identified as our forward operating line to deal with Chinese expansion in the South China Sea. But again, a heel of Achilles. Can't have bases. Their own military capability is limited. 
the archipelago that the Philippine Navy tries to control. They have basically two old Hamilton-class U.S. Coast Guard cutters to control. So once again, it's our hill of Achilles, and yet it's part of our front line. So that's kind of my, my take on the Philippines in, in geopolitical terms. You went into it in a lot more detail, but how would you characterize why the Philippines matter to us uh, strategically? And are they a reliable ally? Is it still an Achilles heel for us? Yeah, I have to say I was struck by just how soon after 1898 the United States came to realize that the Philippines was, from a strategic perspective, in some ways uh, more trouble than it might be worth, right? And the Achilles heel quote from Theodore Roosevelt comes right after uh, Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War, which changes the dynamic in the Pacific drastically. And, you know, uh, what a geographer will tell you is, um, you know, this is a very valuable asset or ally for the United States that just happens to be in the wrong place um, <laughs> uh, in terms of, you know, for most of the 20th century, U.S. concerns in northern and northeast Asia that really make the Philippines location not quite propitious for trade, not quite valuable for, for basing. But the United States has over the 20th century, made sure that the Philippines remains a valued military and also economic partner. And that has also mattered um, because they're also a familiar cultural partner. Um, And so although the United States might have a bigger military presence in Japan or Korea, bigger trade relations with Japan, that the Philippines is in some ways, I like to think of it as a home base. And I think many people in the U.S. Armed Forces think of it that way as well. It's a place that American soldiers and sailors and airmen have been for decades, and it will continue to be a place from which to view continental Asia. Um, and I think that regardless of whether the, the rival is Japan or the Soviet Union or China, um, I think that that will absolutely continue to be the case. Yeah, I think the Philippines are probably increasing again in strategic importance because of location, because because of the first island chain uh, stretching from Japan to Taiwan, the Philippines and South. Two decades ago, I worked in the Pentagon, and the thinking about a Taiwan contingency was it would be a fairly narrow fight. But now, I think both the PLA and the U.S. assume that any crisis in the island chain, whether it's Japan and the Senkakus, Taiwan, South China Sea, it's going to be the whole island chain. So in that, the Philippines right now are kind of the poorest weak spot for us and for the Japanese, because undersea warfare, the Chinese submarines can, if they have control of the seas and the air above the Philippine Sea, they can hide their submarines and then pop out into the Pacific to flank Japan. There's all kinds of geopolitical and geographic importance, which is why the U.S. now is trying to um, build what's called maritime domain awareness, why the Japanese are leasing patrol boats and, and things to help the Philippines get some more control. I think it still is kind of a hill, an Achilles heel, right? I mean, you have a, a section of the book where you look at the withdrawal from Subic and Clark in the 90s. And just looking at history and Philippine political culture, can you see a future where the U.S. actually has reliable access, let alone bases? It seems to me that history matters a lot and the Philippine experience matters a lot. And that would be pretty hard to do. I would have to say I'm I'm maybe more hopeful than that. Um, (laughs) And I think there is a path forward, um, although things look sort of tough right now. And just to, you know, kind of walk you know, listeners through it, you know, at the end of the Cold War, the Philippines voted to eject U.S. bases in 1991, and, and they closed soon thereafter. Uh, Clark's closure was accelerated by the explosion of Mount Pinatubo. But by 1992, Clark Air Base and Subic Bay Naval Station had, had largely closed. But very soon thereafter, new kinds of military joint exercises visiting, and in, after 1998, a visiting forces agreement, um, which didn't immediately go into practice. 
nevertheless made it possible for substantial numbers of U.S. troops to visit for some periods of time. And that coincided also with an increasing awareness within the Defense Department that large-scale presence of tens of thousands of U.S. troops could prove an insurmountable irritant in bilateral relations because of the economic impact, criminal jurisdiction controversies, other things that have made headlines you know, on and off over the years. And so having a sort of smaller footprint with visitations and rotations was on the table anyway. Right now, in 2020, there are tensions um, about the Visiting Forces Agreement. I think there's no reason to think that those couldn't be sort of hammered out and negotiated, you know, maybe not right now, but in the foreseeable future, um, in ways that really make it possible for the two countries to sort of move forward pretty confidently together. But maybe I'm too much of an optimist here. No, I mean, this is a good segue opportunity to talk about how the Philippines look at the U.S. as a strategic partner. And Um, There are obviously many different views. Public opinion polling in the Philippines is consistently high about the United States, even though elites debate about us more, and pretty negative about China on the whole. But you look at history and the detailed studies you did, particularly diving into the archives in the Philippines, you know, what gives you the confidence? Is is there a certain sentimentality about the U.S.? Is it a strategic dependence on the U.S.? What what would open up opportunities uh, in the way the Philippines look at us? You know, one of the things I wanted to do for the book was not only to look at how American strategists thought about the Philippines, but about how Philippine strategists thought Mm -hmm. about Asia, right, and the United States as well. And sort of digging this up from, you know, as early as the 1890s and then into the 1920s, the independence movement advocating independence from the United States always had to answer the question of, well, what then? what next? Um, And what would a truly independent or sovereign Philippines actually look like? And the way I distill this is that I think the central question in Philippine foreign policy, especially since independence in 1946, is are we better off with the Americans or without them? You know, does the presence of U.S. troops invite Japanese invasion? Does the presence of U.S. troops invite a nuclear attack by the Soviets? Does the presence of the United States uh, invite conflict with China? Um, That is an enduring and fundamental question that Filipinos um, need to answer for themselves, but it doesn't always have to have the same answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that when it came to Japan, uh, when it came to the Soviets, there were reasons for Filipinos to, to believe that the presence of U.S. forces brought them into conflicts that might, in some other instances, have spared them. But I think if you look at the way that question is asked and answered today, uh, it's very difficult to imagine a meaningful sovereign Philippines in the 21st century without some sort of continued connection to the United States. So what you're describing is what political scientists who um, are all closet historians call the Thucydides dilemma, you know, that smaller states and alliances always risk being entrapped or targeted because they're allies. But because they're small, if they push too much autonomy, they risk being abandoned. And Japan has to face this. Korea, you know, all the allies in the front line have to face this. And so the Philippines really are no different. But it is interesting because you see this much more clearly in the Japanese literature or the Korean literature. The Philippine strategic writing and strategic literature is much muddier. It's almost that we're so intimately intertwined historically. And in particular, our militaries have so much experience together that the Philippine strategic view doesn't always come out. You know, it was just not a strategic discourse between Washington and Manila. And I guess what you're saying is it's there. 
those strategic choices, those strategic discussions happen in Manila just the way they do in every other frontline U.S. ally. We just have to, sounds like we just have to pull them out. We have to build that platform for a more strategic dialogue with the Philippines. Is that right? I mean, it sounds like there's something there we need to work with, and it's on us to pull that out of our ally. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that on the one hand, I think both Americans and Filipinos, when they think about strategy in Asia, often take this relationship for granted um, and figure out what kinds of you know, smoothing needs to happen at the margins for particular controversies over law or particular tensions over military equipment and hardware, these kinds of things, rather than sort of uh, opening up a broader space. And at the same time, the sort of critics of the U.S. presence, particularly on the Philippine left, have often kind of been marginal to this conversation. And often their advocacy of a complete withdrawal of the United States in some ways doesn't open up for a space for hearing, you know, hearing and incorporating some of the, the criticisms and sort of imagining a, a path forward that would address some of the concerns that, that are being raised on the left as well. I mean, as a matter of policy, you could not get to the more optimistic scenario, and I, find, I think it's a convincing one, that we can have more access for forces, more cooperation, more joint exercises. We can do that, but it has to be built on this the kind of strategic dialogue and listening to the Philippines' specific concerns about China, about sovereignty. If we do that, we have a better chance. And you're not talking about going back to reopening Clark and Subic in bases as we knew them. That I think you'd have a hard time convincing the Pentagon or the Navy to ever completely rely on the Philippines again. You're talking about more access, more cooperation, more joint operations, basically, right? Yes. Um, and in some ways, you know, I think no one really in the Philippines or in the Pentagon wants to reopen the bases as they were in the 1950s and 60s. But I think that, uh, you know, there are opportunities for collaboration and also maybe even for regional collaboration that can be strengthened. The regional point is interesting because there is some interest in Japan, for example, in spreading out the American footprint a bit. We're doing it already in Northern Australia for the Marines. With the Japanese providing some infrastructure support, maybe some participation by self-defense forces or Coast Guard from Japan, that's a lighter footprint and a multilateralized footprint that probably would be easier for the Philippines financially and politically to accept, I would think. So there's a real opportunity there. As long as we're humbled by history <laughs> and, and cognizant of the history that's in your book. Yeah. You talk quite a... Yeah, just one, one more thing, which is I think the other thing that has changed over the 20th century are the sort of cultural and, and familial and immigration ties that have made Filipino-Americans, you know, about four million of them now, you know, an important part of American culture. And I think that those connections are so sort of tightly woven um, that those are also not going anywhere. And I think that as, you know, sort of strategists think about the map of Asia, they also need to kind of think about these non-state relations that are really important for tying the two countries together. You write about that in the book, and I experienced it in the White House. The way that the Philippines and their friends in the U.S. Congress successfully lobbied to get payment for uh, veterans of World War II, right? I watched that happen. I was in the White House, and I can tell you there were parts of the U.S. government that said, no way. <laughs> and the advocates prevailed. I was not one who said, no way for the record, but the advocates prevailed. And I'll tell you, the history to be written that I did not do in my book, you touch on it quite a bit with respect to U.S.-Philippines in your book. I think the history that's got to be written is the role of not just Filipino-Americans, but Korean-Americans, Japanese-Americans, Chinese-Americans, Pacific Islanders, in shaping American policy and strategy and locking us into that region. That's a very important part of American foreign policy making right now that was not really there 30 or 40 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. 
And it's an increasingly important voting block, too, in a lot of in a lot of key swing states and congressional districts. A good segue to democracy. So although this is a mostly book about how we were a relationship forged in war, you talk quite a bit about democracy, democratization, the ouster of Ferdinand Marcos. I came away a little uncertain about where you are on this question, about how much the U.S. should be pushing our friend and ally to democratize. We have less leverage now than we did in the 80s with Marcos, but we do have our friend, President Duterte, who is, you know, I don't know where he is for you on the Marcos scale, but he's not as democratic a leader as his predecessor, that's for sure. Where do you come out on this, looking at the historical pattern? Should we be pressing Duterte to end extrajudicial killings, to, you know, improve democracy and governance? Or do we risk pushing the Philippines into China's camp? Should we be humbled by our history, encouraged by it? Personally, I think the Marcos story should encourage us, but where do you come out on how we handle democracy in the Philippines and, and Duterte specifically? I think a lot of Americans misunderstand President Rodrigo Duterte because they only sort of get snapshots of him that appear in the U.S. press. And usually when he's saying something either strenuously anti-American or just outrageous or even sometimes false. And they also sometimes think that Duterte is a divisive figure in the Philippines in the way that American politics tends to divide 50-50 in its current moment, overlooking the fact that despite uh, his policies, or perhaps even because of them, Duterte is in fact a very popular president in the Philippines. I do think that the United States needs to call out the human rights abuses more clearly to document them, to ask uh, the Philippine government to be accountable for them, and also in particular to support and defend investigative journalists, opposition politicians, and others who are doing that work on the ground in the Philippines. You know, I write in the book about sort of steps that the U.S. government made between 1983 and 1986 that led to Marcos's overthrow. I still give the credit for that overthrow to the Filipino people. Absolutely right. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely right. But don't you think that if George Shultz had not prevailed on Ronald Reagan to send his friend from the Senate to talk to Marcos, there might not have been a people's power revolution? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so the, the United States intervened in an ongoing debate, you know, in particular ways, right, that really sort of sent a, a message to Marcos from Reagan that he was not going to hear from the streets in Manila. And the, as you said, the United States had more leverage then than it does in the Philippines today. And Marcos, despite some of his own erratic behavior, was nowhere near as erratic um, as, as President Duterte now. Um, so I think for the United States to push could yield a very unpredictable result. And our efforts are probably better made at figuring out, well, who on the ground in the Philippines you know, needs more voice and needs to be defended in order both for you know, our national interest to be protected and also our shared interest in democracy. Um, last question, it's always unfair to ask historians, which is why I like asking. If you could have one mulligan, if you could turn back the clock and have perhaps the U.S. take a different approach at some point in this uh, history of U.S.-Philippine relations, what would it be? Would it be 1898, 1899, the way we approached Aguinaldo? Would it be the way we approached Subic Bay? What do-over would you give the U.S.? Uh, by the way, in answering that, I came away from the book feeling, on the whole, pretty good about U.S.-Philippine relations but understanding better some of the real tragedies, miscommunications, but on the whole, feeling pretty good about the U.S. I mean, certainly 
reflected in the high polls of support for the U.S. in the Philippines. Without his context, though, we had some blunders, <laughs> as we always do. So is there anyone you'd like to get a, if you could go back in time and vent that time machine they're working on at MIT right now, is there a point at which you would have recommended to somebody, Taft, McKinley, Roosevelt, whoever, try this a little differently? Man, that's a, that's a great opportunity, right? Uh, <laughs> let me pick two. I'll be quick, right? Uh, that the first, I, I do think that there was an opportunity in 1898 to recognize that Emilio Aguinaldo and the advocates of the Philippine Revolution had, in fact, more in common with our founding fathers than we realized, right? And that there would have been a way to support and, in fact, nourish um, what was the first declared independent republic in Asia and could have given the United States a role in the 20th century in democracy and decolonization, that it talked the talk, but this would have been a chance from the very beginning to walk the walk. But the real mulligan that I would like to redo is whoever wrote the first U.S. history book that put the Philippines in just one chapter and <laughs> right, around, right around 1898 and then immediately moved on to other topics. And I would like to sort of stop that when it first happened. And in some ways, the project of this book is to write the Philippines, Filipinos and Filipino Americans into the whole 20th century. And you know, only once you do that, do you really start to understand the stakes for, for both countries in the Pacific. So the strategic takeaways would be when the United States is on the side of patriots who wanna make their country stronger, we win, we do better. And we're in an era now where to maintain a favorable balance of power in Asia, we need allies and partners. And you want to learn how to work allies and partners, study their history with us. I think that's a really important takeaway. And uh, Bound by War, your book really does that for the Philippines in a way that I haven't seen. I mean, I've seen some good books on the history of counterinsurgency in the Philippines, for example. But this is the kind of book that informs strategy in the present by giving us that tailwind of history that got us where we are. And it doesn't point necessarily to the exact way forward, but it certainly shows us where the shoals are, where the winds are, and to continue the sailing metaphor, it helps us make a better chart. So, Chris, congratulations. It's a great book, great read, really, really fun read, in addition to being fantastic scholarship. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, last question, what's the next book or the next project? Well, I'm not quite sure, but the, the next project that I'm working on right now is with a group called the uh, Filipino Veterans Recognition and Education Project, Philvet Rep, which has a website where on November 6th, a, a digital exhibition will launch that focuses on the history of Philippines in World War II and the efforts of Filipino veterans um, to obtain naturalization and veterans benefits over the 20th century. And so I think it's a great, uh, a different way for people who maybe don't like to read big fat books like you write and, and I write, <laughs> and different way for people to interact with this history. Great. Well, Chris Capozzello, uh, MIT historian, thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.